Okay, thank you for all the questions. We've doubled the questions from yesterday, so we look forward to trying to answer those. So if you could, uh, maybe sit up straight and don't lean back too far. Take some deep breaths so you don't get too sleepy. I know it's a long day, and uh, it's easy to get real tired, but give these uh, brothers your attention. They may be answering a question that you've had or are having uh, at this time. So we'll just start with Elder Bradley and go around to each minister with one or two questions. Question is, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, obviously, you cannot pray 24 hours a day. You've got to have time to sleep and work and do other things. But I think it simply is saying that prayer is to be a, an integral part of our life every day. We certainly should be thinking about praying when we start the day, when we get up in the morning. And always giving thanks when we have breakfast and lunch and supper and give thanks for every blessing that comes to us and be praying constantly for his help. If we have a true sense of our own weakness, we know that we need him perpetually. Uh, the verse has been quoted here a couple of times from the book of Hebrews, which says that uh, we've been encouraged to come. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you really see your own unworthiness and know your weakness, you know that you desperately need help and you desperately need mercy. I love that expression in the Psalms when it says that his mercy goes unto the heavens. Now, we've already used up a good supply of mercy in our life, but we need an abundance more. And how wonderful to know that we're encouraged to come, that we may obtain mercy. Mercy because of our unworthiness, because of our failures, because of our sins. We need grace to help. If we know how weak we are, we know we can't make it no matter what the project, no matter what the undertaking. If we're going to do it to the glory of God, we need help. And he has promised to give help to those that have no might. Not just those who are struggling with a little sense of weakness, but somebody knows absolutely I am weak. I have no strength in myself. I need God's help, God's grace, God's support in everything that I do. And so if you have the sense of your need, prayer is not just a duty where you think, well, oh, better get with it and you ought to pray at least twice today no it's not it's not just a duty it's a, it's a matter that you feel the need of it the need of it i spoke to you about the model prayer this morning and i was thinking about how times have changed that when i was in uh, the public schools because homeschooling was hardly heard of back in those days we started the day by reciting the lord's prayer and pledging allegiance to the flag. Now you can tell public schools have drifted a good bit from those days. But I was always hesitant after that to just pray the Lord's Prayer because I was afraid it was too much of a formality that maybe we would say the words and not be sincere. But in later years, I've come to appreciate what it means to repeat the Lord's Prayer. Sometime when I first get up in the morning and I'm a little struggling to get the cobwebs out of my head and try to think where do I need to start, it's, it's a good way to start to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. 
and know that you're genuine and sincere in that prayer as you pray it. So whether it's at a special given time or just periodically as it comes, I feel like I'm struggling. I don't even know how to pray. Well, here's an example. Here's a pattern that we can use. We can literally pray it and then be assured that as Jesus Christ is the intercessor, whoever lives to make intercession for us, Romans chapter 8 tells us the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. How wonderful to know that we have his help and his assistance even as we sometimes don't know what to pray for and how to pray, but his blessing. But may it be our sincere desire to fulfill this commandment to pray without ceasing. Don't you love the way he answers questions? <laughs> yeah, pass them down. <laughs> Brother Bradley, uh, speaking about praying without ceasing, you recently shared with me an experience uh, where you pray in a specific way without ceasing and, and an experience at the doctor's office. Can you share that with them? Well, it uh, t takes a little bit to give all of the details to put this together. But um, uh, years ago, the largest Baptist church in Cincinnati had a division. And the pastor left and constituted another church, which was named New Testament Baptist Church. And he got sick a couple of years after he was in that pastorship. And he called my pastor in Lexington, Kentucky, and said, Would you be able to come preach for us this Sunday? I am sick. I desperately need your help. He said, well, I'd love to come, but it's just absolutely impossible. He said, I've got a young preacher in our church that I'd be glad to send. Uh, he said, well, how old is he? He said, well, right now he's 15, but he's going to be 16 in a week. So uh, uh, in desperation, they finally decided I'd the only one they had, so they sent me. So since I didn't have my driver's license, I had to ride the train up to Cincinnati and uh, Pastor Hillard's son picked me up at the train station and uh, got me acquainted with people in the church. So I preached there that Sunday, and they said, well, it doesn't look like Brother Hillard's going to be able to preach next Sunday, so could you come back? I said, yes. So I preached 13 weeks in succession. And then he got better, pastored the church for a while, and then died. And they then called me as pastor. By that time, I was 17. So periodically, I think about things that happened years gone by. And just the other day, I was on the way to the doctor's office, and I got to thinking about Brother Hillard. And I thought, I wonder if there's any of his descendants still around. And I just decided I'd pray. Lord, if there are any Brother Hillard's descendants still around and active in this part of the country, just bless them and be with them in a special way. And uh, I thought of my times with him uh, that were very pleasant. So I get to the doctor's office, and there's a new lady there to check in. I'd never seen her before. When I came around and sat down in the waiting room, she came in and said, uh, Well, Sarah Bradley, I saw your name on the register. I've heard of you for years. I've always wanted to meet you. So she said, I am B.H. Hillard's granddaughter. <laughs> I said, Well, I was praying for you on the way to the office. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, 
Well, I sure appreciate it, and I'm so thankful that you thought to pray for our family. And she said, we got one more connection here. Uh, I have a picture of your mother-in-law, who was a head nurse at Bethesda Hospital years ago, handing my brother to my mother when he was born. So she brings it up on her phone and says, I said, yes, that's my mother-in-law. And it was just coincidental that we had that connection from time back. So then I said, well, by the way, where do you go to church at present? And she told me the name of the church. And I said, well, then you know the worship leader there is James Kenneth. She said, I don't know him personally, but I see him all the time. I said, well, he works for me. She said, he works for you? I I said, yes, he's the producer of our radio broadcast. And uh, I work with him every week. And I said, just one more connection. His daughter is married to my grandson. So (laughs) (laughs) we just kept going with connections. But it was uh, touching to her and a blessing to me to think that I was praying for somebody on the way there and then had the opportunity to meet one of those descendants of B.H. Hillard. And then he found out they were neighbors. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm thankful this is not a competition for really answering questions. Here's my question. Uh, how can I love my enemies when I can't even love my friends and family? Well, one of the dangers in answering these questions just by receiving them on a card anonymously is that um, just reading them, I could make some wrong assumptions not knowing more context. Um, but if I were sitting across from the person who was asking this question, I would, I, would, I would say, why? Why can't you love them? And try to just learn a little bit more about what's happening. So I, the way I see it, there's, there's two possibilities. Um, you know, God, uh, God created uh, the family as the first institution, the first place, the, first, the, the, the foundation um, for which um, harmony and warmth and fellowship that reflects that same harmony that's in the Trinity uh, would be seen. Um, the family is a place where there's supposed to be belonging and communion and communication and love and care and all those things. And so it's possible um, that, that this is a big, a big red light for you. Um, the problem may be you um, if you cannot get along with your family. Um, it may be a reflection of the reality that uh, you are, um, really your problem is not so much with them, um, but it is with God. And the good news is there is that um, God has sent his son Jesus, as we heard last night, Jesus is the love of God, um, and the work of Christ is a work of reconciliation. So he reconciles us back to the Father who we have offended and are estranged from, there's also that horizontal axis uh, that Ephesians describes, um, where we are also—we not only are no longer separated from God, but allowed to come into His presence and receive blessing from Him and be received into His into His presence. But also the the wall of partition that stands between humans is is also torn down, so that. Uh, through the love of Christ, we are able to love one another, and that love is a sacrificial love. It's a love that's filled with, it's not, it's not perfect here on this side of the earth, and so it requires forgiveness and confession 
and working things out and uh, having long conversations sometimes. But I would just point you to Jesus if the, if the problem is that you just think they're all a bunch of morons, okay? Um, but it's possible that's not the story. It may be the opposite. Um, it may be um, the reason that you cannot love your family is because your family really is um, unreasonable and, is, and you don't find any love or care at home. I think about um, a girl I met in India a few weeks ago. I was preaching from 1 Peter 1, and I mentioned um, that, that we've been scattered throughout the earth through the love, foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, and so after the sermon, she came up to talk, and she was talking, and then she just, just, just began to cry. Um, and she told me about how that when she had come to know Jesus, um, that it had, it had meant that she was um, isolated from her family. And, and the, the thing that she missed the very most was the love of her father. And she didn't have that love of the father anymore. Her father, her father had, had, had disassociated himself from her. And so she was comforted once again with, with the knowledge that, um, that God is a heavenly father who is fully faithful and fully present and fully there. And so that may be the case with you. I don't know. Um, and if that is the case, um, I, would, I would point you to the love of the Father. I would point you to the communion of saints that God gives. When he tears down the, the, uh, the, the wall of partition, he brings us into a company of believers. So what we may be missing at home, we, may, we, we will receive um, through, uh, through believers in Christ. Um, but even more, I would say... You, you must love them. You must love them. Love doesn't mean that you enjoy being with them. But love is described in Matthew 5 as Jesus, as I said last night, showed us by example. Love is to bless them that curse you. Love is to do good to them who aren't doing good to you. And love is to pray for them. And so only through the power of what Jesus has done for us and the power of his fellowship through his spirit today you can love them. You can love them in action. You can love them by praying for them. You can love them by not returning evil for evil. Feel free to add to that, brother. Again, not knowing the situation, but is if there is estrangement to try to maintain a forgiving spirit, even if reconciliation has not yet taken place, because in the Sermon on the Mount, the model prayer, Jesus takes the issue of forgiveness and repeats it. It's the only line he repeats and says, For if you forgive not those that trespass against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you of your trespasses. And so an unforgiving heart expresses that there's uh, a relational problem uh, with God the Father. And so uh, the opportunity for, to forgive may not be there yet and to be reconciled, but to maintain a loving spirit and a forgiving spirit. So if the opportunity comes, because Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you don't forgive from the heart, and so there's a heart that is delighted in the fact that God has forgiven me, that I'm willing and ready to forgive those that trespass against me. And so uh, the relationship with God, our Father, works itself out in a horizontal forgiveness that won't just happen when the time comes, but as you maintain a forgiving spirit, then 
God may open the door for reconciliation if there is estrangement. And, and the scriptures say that God does that a lot of times. God uses, 1 Peter 3, God uses um, you walking in the power of the Spirit, living out the gospel by loving those who are unlovely to bring them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine anything greater than that? God using your pain, God using your suffering, but not just the suffering, how you suffer through it. Suffering, trusting yourself to him to bring them to know Jesus Christ and to love you. What a blessing that would be. Anybody else? Okay, this question is, does God still love someone even though they're gay? So, before we answer the question, I think there, sometimes it's helpful to, to phrase the question um, in a way that's consistent with um, how Scripture addresses it. So, um, does God love someone even though they're gay? Uh, the culture has really pushed um, the embracing of really any identity you want. It's not just gay anymore. It's, it's, uh, it, you, you could be whatever you wanted to be, uh, whatever your, uh, wherever your desires lead you, you can embrace that as a full person identity. That's not a biblical concept. And so um, as we think about the question, first and foremost, as far as Scripture is concerned, uh, the word gay is not describing what someone is. Of course, the word gay is not in Scripture, but uh, the word for homosexuality and homosexuals is in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 through 11, it talks about those who are effeminate, those who are abusers of themselves with mankind. Both of those would be talking about homosexual activity. And it is something you do. It's not something that you are. Um, so you could ask the question this way, does God still love me even though I habitually murder people? Does God still love me even though I habitually steal? Does God still love me even though I habitually act upon same-sex attraction? That's the line of the way that that question should be understood. So here's, here's the, the reality in Scripture again. Gay is not something you are. It's a desire that you're either fighting or embracing. And we are all, every, every single person in this room, there is no exception. Every person in this room is sexually broken in some way. And you're going to have to wrestle with that until the day that you die. Now, we're not going to go into all the details of what that might look like, but in a fallen world, there's no such thing as someone whose sexuality is not tainted by sin. There's no such thing as someone who does not wrestle with desires that they didn't uh, wake up and, and sign up for the day before. And so we all desire things that we might not, uh, that we're not proud of. We all desire things that are, um, maybe you are proud of them, but you also know they are a violation of God's standard and God's word. And so the real question is, what are you doing with that desire? So another part of the answer is, does God love those who struggle with same-sex attraction? That's the, uh, that's the way I'm going to phrase it. And the question is, there is grace and help for everyone who desires to honor the Lord by turning from their sin and turning to Christ. 
Okay? There, there is help and grace for every single person who, who, who would rather, uh, who, who would seek to honor God by turning from their same-sex attraction or honestly opposite-sex attraction in a sinful way, any, anything like that, turning from that and turning to God. Because categorically, if we're thinking about this biblically, the ultimate question is this. It's not, does God love me if I'm gay? The question is, do I love God more than I love my sinful desire? See, the question, does God still love me if I'm gay, is a ladder that really leads to nowhere. Because at best, the answer is yes, and you get to say, okay, you know, that that settles that. At worst, the answer is no, and you say, I knew what those judgmental preachers were going to say. Of course they would say that. And you become cynical and hardened. But the real question is not, does God love me if I'm gay? The real question is, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, do you love God more than you love your desire? Because we are worshiping beings, and we will either worship God and suppress our desires. That's everybody in this room, not just people who struggle with same-sex attraction. You will either worship God and suppress your desires or you will worship your desires and suppress God and the truth in unrighteousness. So that's the way that works. You may have follow-up questions. If you do, I'm happy to uh, con- uh, have a conversation about that with you. One statement that's often made, too, is that uh, someone that's a Christian may say, I'm gay, I just don't act on that anymore or I don't act on it and so as, as brother Lewis pointed out that's a wrong identity when Paul was converted he didn't say I'm a murderer I just don't act on it or I'm a Pharisee I just don't conduct myself that way anymore he said I'm crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave my gave himself for me so you have a new identity in Christ, and even if you struggle with that as a believer, that's one of the sins that had to be put to death in Colossians chapter 3. When those categories of words uh, like lasciviousness and inordinate affection, uh, those words encapsulate pornography, same-sex desire, lustful desires, heterosexual desires that need to be put to death. And so he begins the chapter, as Brother Zach pointed out, if you then be risen with Christ, you're in Christ, you're united to Christ, your identity is in Christ. And so Romans six twelve says, uh, we are to therefore reckon ourselves, think of ourselves as dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign or rule anymore in your mortal bodies. Why? You're united to Christ. You're in Christ. So if you're a believer, I would encourage you, if you struggle with that, not to say, I'm gay, but I'm not acting on it. You're not gay. You're in Christ, and you need to think that way. And according to the Bible, that's going to start transforming your thinking that's going to help you do battle against the desires of the flesh. And just to follow up on what he just said, you can use that, how do I take a thought captive from, that, from my anger slide on that PowerPoint? 
to take yourself to Scripture and do exactly what Brother Mike just talked about. Those questions, if you would go through those and figure out what Scripture says about it, you can do that all by yourself. The question I have is, is it bad to like a girl? Is it like lust? I'm assuming as a young man, I ask this question. Um, and is it bad to like a girl? Um, of course, God made men and women to be attracted to each other. When God brought Eve to Adam, he didn't go blech. <laughs> he said, whoa, man. So that's a good thing. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. <laughs> Neither would you. <clears throat> so lust, what is lust? Lust is sinful desire. It's desire for what God has forbidden. So there are all sorts of ways to appropriately like for a young man to like a, a girl in, in ways that are not lustful. What's forbidden is to desire what God has forbidden, to desire sex outside of marriage, for example. So th that's lust. That's what, we should, that's what we should mortify and kill and, and not make provision for the flesh to fulfill those types of desires. All right. Is it wrong to hope that God will wait to come back until you've lived out your life? Um, I really appreciate whoever asked that question, because um, I think you're being pretty honest. Uh, I remember um, when I was younger thinking that, like, I, man, I'm, I'm all for the Lord coming back. Amen. I believe it. I want that. But man, I, there's a few things I'd like to be able to experience before that happens. So I, I, I can identify with, um, with this question. I've, I've had two people ask me about the wrist and, say, and then say, how old are you now? So now I'm 39, and I'm ready for Jesus to come back, all right? Um, uh, so, um, <laughs> so, so I think you know the answer to the question just by asking it, right? Like, you, you know you probably should want uh, the Lord to come back. Uh, you, you, should, you should not put any life experience above seeing the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. But let me just say this, um, I, don't, I don't mock anybody who, who feels that way. It's kind of like um, if you were to ask a five-year-old, and we'll pick on Lewis's uh, PowerPoint yesterday when he had the angry birds up there, and if a, if a five-year-old said, man, the, if you asked them, what's the best day in your life you could imagine? And what if they said, an angry bird's birthday party? Man, they would really, we would all say, that, I, can, I, can, I can respect that, that's, that's good, that'd be a great day, wouldn't it? But you would think, listen, five-year-old. If your life goes well, there's going to be a whole lot better stuff than an Angry Birds birthday party. It really will. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't say that in a condescending way. I say it because um, what I would say is keep growing in the Lord. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the longer you experience life, the more you will see there is nothing better than Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That, that the best joys and pleasures on earth will pale in comparison to that day when he returns. And, and all, of the, all of the things that we desire in life, like let's say I want to experience marriage before he comes back. 
You know what marriage is ultimately pointing to? It's pointing to the glorious relationship that all of God's people will have with our Lord for all eternity. Um, so really the best, uh, purest pleasures that God creates here on earth are really just, um, they're just signposts, they're just appetizers, they're just foretaste of the glory that we're going to experience um, with the Lord. And then I would say this is, is just trust God with your life, that uh, the, Lord, the Lord's writing your story, and, and he's not going to make, make a mistake on when Christ returns. And he won't make a mistake on all that you experience or don't experience before Christ returns. So you're safe in just trusting the Lord with that. And then, and then enjoy every day he gives you. Enjoy every day he gives you. Uh, enjoy every phase of life. Um, as a young person, a lot of times it's always I'm waiting for the next thing. You know, when I get my driver's license, then when I graduate, then when I get out of the house, then when this, then when this. And um, I would just say that I told somebody today, a godly life is made up of godly days. So just live today um, for the Lord's glory. And when Jesus comes back, it'll get even better. I was almost 32 when I got married, and I had just so hoped the Lord would wait until after I got married to come back. And the night before, literally the night before our wedding in Memphis, there was an earthquake. <laughs> and I'd never been a small earthquake, but it was, it was enough to get my attention because I really... <laughs> I really thought Jesus was coming back the night before. <laughs> the question I was handed is, if God is perfect and all-knowing, why did he create imperfections and sin? God is perfect and all-knowing. Why did he create imperfections and sin? The simple answer, a simple answer, but it's probably simplistic, is he didn't. That's the simple answer. If God is perfect and all-knowing, why did he create imperfections and sin? Uh, you know, at first blush, the question would be answered, God didn't create imperfections, and God did not create sin. Uh, we read in Genesis that as the creation story unfolds, every time God puts divine commentary on his own work, it's always, and it was good, and very good. Nice for us to say good and very good, but when God says it, we have no doubt that it was superior. So the initial thing is perfectly done, and there aren't any imperfections so far as we, the only imperf mild imperfection was with respect to this issue of marriage. And when God says it's not good that man be alone, that's the first, the first not good in Scripture, of course, and He remedies that in bringing uh, Eve, the woman, to Adam, the man. But there's more behind the question, obviously. If God is perfect and all-knowing, why did he create imperfections? I'm assuming the author of the question means why are there imperfections and why is there sin if God is, is perfect and all-knowing? And, and I would say that first, we must respect what the Scripture says about the origin of sin in the world. Romans 5.12, for example, when he says, by one man sin entered into the world. So God, God did not usher sin into the world. Um, this is man's fault, not God's. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Uh, sin is the result of our, of our, own, our own goofiness. Uh, but then the question behind that, of course, has to be, 
a lot of, for years in my life, I would have stopped the answer right there. Sin and imperfection is all man's fault. But there's another question that is, is being, there's another thread pulled right here. You can't help but pull it. And that is the question. If God is all-perfect and all-powerful, why did he let man mess it up like that? I mean, isn't this the, that's the real question, right? Why would, why would God not stop Adam before he, <laughs> my students at the school are always asking, well, then why did God even put that tree there if, if he didn't really want Adam to take of it and so forth. And that's a much more complicated question, but it all comes down to this. Um, Isaiah, 40, uh, Isaiah 48, 11, for mine own sake, God says, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. The idea seems to be that God is, God is willing for man to make the mess in order for a platform to be created on which God's glories will be staged. Now, if you followed that, that's, that would have been better in print probably than said out, out loud. So think about it this way. Um, God is about his own glory, and he's the only being in the universe for whom this is okay. okay? It's all right for God to seek his own glory. Why? Because there aren't any gaps in God. If I seek my own glory, you, you know, you would laugh me off the stage, and you should, because there are so many gaps in me, so many goofy things, and so much that's messed up. It would be silly for me and inconsistent for me to seek my own glory. But God has no inconsistencies, no gaps, no gaffes. And so God is the one being who can seek his own glory and invite others into the delight in that glory. So how does he do this? Well, he marches right in on top of this rubble, this debris of man's sin, and says, that's the stage I'd like to put my glory on, right there. And that's precisely what he does. Um, I've read this somewhere, and is anybody here from Chicago? Is there anybody here from Chicago? All right, so um, this is probably entirely wrong, so I'm really going to embarrass myself. But I have read before that when the Chicago fire, I'm sure I've read this. If it's totally wrong, it's still a great story. So we'll just say um, that when the Chicago fire, the famous Chicago fire happened in the 1870s, burned the city, like 17,000 buildings were burned down. And this horrible, horrible fire in Chicago in the 1870s. I'm told that they finally, there's so much debris to clean up, you just couldn't even, I mean, how would you start? They finally just pushed all this debris over into the lake. What lake is it there? Lake Michigan, thank you. I teach school, you can tell, right? Um, lake Michigan, they just pushed the debris over into the lake and filled up a portion of it and built a park there. <laughs> now, that's a pretty, and by the way, they also, well, anyway, that's, an, that's an, enough of an illustration to show. In a way, this is what God is doing. This debris of man's sin, all the carnage, all the wreckage, of the mess that we have made, it is God's pleasure to march in on top of that stuff, all that garbage, and just tramp it down and display his glory. And, and, this, and the greatest place this happens is at the cross. Jesus being put to death by evil men who are so misguided, led by Satan. Satan's 
partying and all of this, and Jesus is dying, and it seems like all that is good and right is collapsing before their eyes when, in fact, many sons are being brought to glory by this, you see. Many sons being brought to glory by this glorious act of God putting his glory on display right on the stage of man's sin. Your life is that way, mine is too, and praise the Lord, he's able to take the, de- the debris and turn it into something good. All things for the child of God, we're told, work together for good to them that love God. So there are several reasons. Man brought the problem into the world, but God wasn't going to let man have the last word, nor the devil. He comes in, builds a stage out of all of that on which his glory will be displayed. Thank you. question is, if looking upon a woman to lust after her in the heart is adultery, does that mean that dressing in a way to provoke others to look at us or to be attracted to us is the same? So in other words, um, can I be guilty of the same sin of adultery um, by alluring that man to look at me? And I think the, the quick and, and ready answer to that question is no. Uh, because the passage says that Brother Jeremiah preached last night, the passage said that the sin is in the look, and we need to be careful to to not uh, even in a in a um, uh, what seems to be a, a prudent way to not speak beyond what the Scripture speaks. And, and I wanted to say that for a couple of reasons. We we are in a, a time in our uh, culture. And in our um, even our evangelical religious culture, in which I believe Satan is very uh, is fomenting uh, as much as he can the age-old division between the man and the woman that was pronounced upon uh, the, the the world uh, as a cur- human race as a curse back in Genesis chapter three, and we see Christians doing that. Um, um, Probably in good in good in good faith, but foolishly. Through let me give you a couple of examples on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, you can read about this um, if, if you follow religious news today. The, the the story of David and Bathsheba. On one end of the spectrum, there are books written about the sin of Bathsheba, when the scriptures do not credit Bathsheba with the sin there at all. That's not how the scriptures uh, play out that story. On the other end of the spectrum, more currently, um, people are charging David with even a greater sin than what the Bible charged him with because of his position as king over, uh, over Israel. And that, all that is doing is, is creating more and more and more and more division um, between Christians, between men and between women and Satan is having a heyday with that. And so be very careful that even in your desire to pursue righteousness, um, that you, you don't go beyond Scripture in your pursuit of righteousness. Now, let me say this as well. This is a lot broader issue, isn't it? It's an issue, I'm talking about 
dress and modesty and sexuality and um, and 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 sin and lust, and it's an issue. It's a it's, it's causes it causes a lot of angst, doesn't it? Um, a lot of angst and uh, a lot of, of of division and a lot of wrestling. And it almost seems like there should be one more book of the Bible that would just sort of clear all this out up up for us, um, but it's not there. Um, and so Christians, um, Christians really struggle uh, over these over these issues and even getting along and com- having conversations and doing church together and all these kind of things. But I think I think Jesus has has spoken sufficiently to all issues. Okay, and so there, there's there's one passage I want to point you to. It sums up the law and the prophets. Here's what it says: Thou shalt love uh, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and all thy soul. And all thy strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And ultimately, that answers all of these questions that we wrestle with. Okay? So, first of all, love God. Love God. Um, Love God with all of your being. Love God with your heart. Love God with your body. Whether you eat, or drink, or get dressed, or look in the mirror, whatever you do, do it in love and praise to God. That means a lot of things. It means, number one, your body is not sinful. God made your body, okay? That's, that, that, that's, that sort of uh, fixes one issue people have, the idea that the body is sinful. And on the other hand, your body is not your own, but it's bought with a price, and it's meant to glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And so, modesty is not a male issue or a female issue, but it's a human race issue. Ultimately, it's a redeemed human race issue. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Modesty ultimately is not about sexuality, although it includes sexuality, but modesty is about a whole demeanor that begins in the heart that seeks to bring glory and honor to God in everything that we do, say, think, and everything else. So love God. Love God with all that you are. Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. So that will include, that will include the desire to not um, bring undue attention on myself, on both ends of the spectrum, but that will also that will also produce a desire to trust the conscience of my brother or sister and to judge them with charity in all things. What that means is is that if Brother Lewis and I have different um, places that we arrive in how we dress, he. I haven't seen Lewis wear a T-shirt in I don't know how long. He's wearing tennis shoes. I'm proud of that. It's the first time in a long time. But I don't really like his style, to be honest with you. And I tend to think Isaac chops in the women's department. <laughs> and he always gets the last word. <laughs>
so as I was saying, <laughs> as I was saying, I think I think the Bible. Um, I think the Bible knows what it's doing. I think God knows what he's doing when he wrote the Bible. And I think God knows what he's doing when he gave us the command to love God and love our neighbor and says, this sums up all the law and the prophets, as opposed to giving us a, a, a new forgotten book of the Bible that lays all this out for every culture at every time in every age and then says, it's the way you do. Because you know what you would do? Your heart would be completely exempt from this. And your call to love your brother, love your sister, would be exempted from this. And that's not how God relates to us. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God is relating to you in grace and love and mercy? And that you're relating to God in honor and joy and thanksgiving, and seeking to be holy. And so, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, this one, um, many people believe Matthew 7, 7 is referring to eternal salvation. How would you deal with this type of thinking? I'm assuming that's in relation to prayer, which these brothers spoke on. Um, I, don't, I don't really, I'm not going to get into a long discussion on this, but I don't really um, believe uh, in a big distinction of eternal salvation and time salvation. Um, the process of salvation started before the world began when God chose a people in Christ, and it continues when Christ came to the world and purchased redemption and continues when the Spirit applies that in regeneration and conversion and brings people to faith in Christ and to love the Lord. And it continues. It's in process now um, until glory. So in one sense, um, uh, we are saved and we're being saved and we will be saved. Uh, we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body, and that will complete. Um, salvation will be culminated and consummated then. So I think that sometimes there may be a good desire to say, I, I don't want to have any kind of an idea that I have any part in any part of phase of salvation. That may be why there's a big distinction laid down in a well-meaning way. Um, but I think that may be a little bit simplistic to think that way. So there's an old deacon in our church who used to pray a prayer. He's going to be with the Lord. And he would pray this. I wrote it down so I can remember. He would say, God, uh, choose our changes for us. And finally, in heaven, save us. For we ask it in thy son's name, amen. That's how he, he closed his prayers many times that way. Um, did I think that he was blasphemous by saying, please, finally in heaven, save us? When God, you said that you would, you would save your people. Now, I think he was claiming the promise of God, and God works through the prayers of his people. Um, it's a very actually similar prayer to what Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he said, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. You say, well, if, if God's going to do it, Paul, why are you praying for it? Um, well, maybe our minds are a little too simplistic in that case. Maybe God works through the prayers of his people. And Paul's praying, you know, writing, praying under the inspiration of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you will preserve your people. You'll keep your people all the way to the end. God, I pray that you will 
keep my faith, that you'll give me grace to fight lusts and sins that would destroy me, as he so very well preached um, this morning. Um, have we ever prayed Psalm 23, 6, I think it is, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a great one to turn into a prayer. God, may your goodness and your mercy run after me today. So I think it may be, um, in my mind, a simplistic way to think about that, when, when rather uh, God gets all the glory for salvation. He's doing it, but we're still in process. It's a sure, secure thing, but he is, he is faithful as he that calleth you who will do it, and I'm going to pray for it. First um, uh, John 2, uh, my little children, you will, those who have received the anointing, you will abide in him. And the very next verse says, and now abide in him. So that's how I would answer, answer that. I had one more question that I'd forgotten about for Brother Jamie. Uh, why is Pam Lindsay trend, trending on Twitter? I think he feels like he's been betrayed by friends. <laughs> Very good. Of course, that was uh, in, in lightheartedness. But, uh. All right. If you uh, have a question that you wanted to ask these brothers uh, after we dismiss, they'll be available for you. Or you ask a question, you wanted more clarity, uh, as soon as we dismiss, you can come up and do